Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we are concluding a series today uh, called Crystal. This series could have gone on for a very long time, uh, but uh, we, need to, we need to bring it to conclusion uh, it's been very enlightening and challenging, I think, to all of us. Um, the last part of the series, we've focused on the local church and our relationship to it. And it turns out, I think, that uh, we, we likely underestimate uh, its place and function in our lives. So we've learned that our identity and our experiences, Christians, cannot primarily be viewed privately or individualistically but rather must be viewed corporately. And we've seen that as it relates to spirituality, our identity, community, and then last week we started purity, and we'll end on purity today. Our identity is so tied to each other that uh, not even our sin can be viewed as a personal problem or a private matter. Even our sin, we have to think. How is it affecting the group? So I must see my sin in light of all of us. And I have to be connected enough to a church that I'm accountable to it for how I live my life. That's one of the questions we've been asking underneath all of this in the last four weeks. How, How connected to a church do I have to be? Connected enough to where you're accountable to it. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, just one caveat before I bring us up to speed from last week. To those of us, to those of you who might be visiting today, uh, and you might be investigating Christianity, you might not call yourself a believer. You certainly have your doubts about the church. Well, you've stumbled into a a church service where I'm going to give what is probably the churchiest talk you, you can hear. And so I need you to sort of understand that. And then hopefully by the end, you'll be able to say, you'll say, that's kind of heavy. But then you'll go, but I see. But I see what's being, I understand. So in Matthew chapter 18, we looked at the process for church discipline. So what happens if one of us uh, do sin in a certain way that it has to be dealt with? And we said that in Matthew 18, there's a little process for that. If you see a brother involved in something that's just sort of overwhelming his life, and maybe he doesn't see it, because we can all be blind to, to wrongdoing, then you go to him. You go to him privately, and you, you hope that he listens and that you win your brother. But if he doesn't listen, if he refuses to listen to you, then you take a buddy or two. You take two other people you think might be instrumental He may know the two, he may not know the two, but they will be helpful in talking to him and helping them see. Now there's three of you maybe to help him see. And if he refused to listen to you, the scripture says in uh, verse 18, or let's see, let's see right here. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
And last week, we discussed this, that you've got to have a church to tell it to. You've got to be close enough to a church. You've got to be connected enough to a church that you're accountable to it, right? And if you don't, then your whole identity changes. Look, you become a Gentile and a tax collector to a person who doesn't want to hear about this. They don't want anybody telling them about it. They don't want anybody confronting them. They don't want to stop it. So what does it mean to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? Let him be an outsider. Let him be someone who's on the outside, because I'm going to show you today that what that means is he's got to be removed from the church. He's got to be removed. He's got to be someone who's an outsider. That's what Gentile and tax collector mean. So, this person loses his identity, and this is really, really important, Hillside. If you don't have a church to be in because you've been removed from it because of your sin, you're actually treated like someone who's not in it. You have no spiritual identity anymore, not from the standpoint of the group. And if you don't have that, you're outside of the church, you're an outsider, and you, you lose your identity. And the reason is, is because we can't distinguish you from the world. We can't distinguish you from the world because you've, you've taken this hardened stance about your sin. So, you have to be close enough to a church that you can be kicked out of it. That sounds harsh, but hang with me. You've got to be close enough to a church that you can be kicked out of it. And it mattered to you. Take your breath away. And then it would matter to us too because we don't want to see that happen to any of us. That's why I think membership is important. This is one of the most powerful issues of present as it relates to membership and partnership. You said, should I become a member of the church I attend? Absolutely. Why? Because you're surrendering to that accountability. And the church has identified you. Lots of people sit in a church service, have, are not connected to this church, are not identified with the community. How do you identify them? We have a membership process. Well, we go, oh, okay, here's a person who's willingly surrendering themselves to the corporate authority of the body. Otherwise, we don't know. And so we have to, we have to handle that situation differently. So that's why it really matters, because we identify the people who say, yeah, this is, I'm, I want to be connected to this community enough that I'm accountable to it. So we've got to ask basically three questions. Why do you have to be mo- removed from a church if you take that stubborn stance? Why do you have to be removed from it? What kind of sins bring that on? And then what does it really look like worked out in a church? I have a lot to cover. So let's, I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 5. And we're going to look, first of all, at the whole text. This is the whole text of 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. And all I want you to see, I'm going through withdrawals without my board today, so I have a little laser. (laughs) Is at the beginning of this text, it talks about remove this person from the midst 
And then down here at the end, it says, again, remove from the midst. So from the beginning and the end, right there, that's called an inclusio. We've talked about that before. That's your topic. Everything in between is how to handle that and why. It'll answer the three questions I just asked. Why do you have to be removed? What kind of sins remove you uh, would be sort of in that list. And then how does the church deal with it? How should the church visualize it? So that's the whole text, all right? And now we're going to look at uh, verses 1 and 2. And we've got to scoot through these. We're just going to get the text. Uh, here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. It's actually reported among you that sexual immorality exists among you. So we could stop right there and just say, that would be enough. Any kind of sexual immorality would be something you have to address in your body. But he goes further because this situation is even... You, Paul's going to suggest a little bit on the darker side of even that. He's going to say, you actually have uh, among you the kind of immorality that's not permitted even among Gentiles. There's our word again that Jesus used in Matthew 18. That's an outsider. So that someone is cohabiting, sleeping with his father's wife. So this is somewhat, because he's with his stepmother. We don't know if the father's died or what the story is, but it's incestual at some level there because he's with his stepmother. So it's kind of taken a little bit of a darker turn. Now here's essentially, uh, I want you to notice that Paul is going to address this, this issue and his focus is going to be on the body, not the person. He's going to talk a little bit about the person who's involved. He's going to talk mostly about the body left with the problem. And that's where I want us to focus. Okay? So, uh, so here's, that's Paul's main concern. Now watch what he says in verse 2. You are proud. Now this is, you've got to understand 1 Corinthians to know what Paul means. He's not proud, they're not proud of the incest. They're an arrogant church. In other words, they think they're so high and mighty spiritual, yet they're tolerating sin. And all Paul is trying to suggest to you is, don't be calling yourself spiritual and boasting about how spiritual you are if sin doesn't matter to you. Those two don't go together. Sin matters. All right? You should be sorrowful. It should, you should mourn is the word. You should be brokenhearted. You should be broken up over this. Why isn't it bothering you anymore? To the degree that this person needs to be removed. Right there. There it is again. He needs to be out of your midst. And you say, why does it need to be removed? Why is Paul jumping to the removal side? Because apparently we've already done all the other, ste other, other, the other steps. In fact, verse 1, when it says... Uh, Someone is cohabiting with his father. That means he's presently doing it. He has no intention of stopping. He has taken a stance in the immorality. I'm not giving this up. That's the attitude. Okay? That's the attitude. So, now, what I want you to see, what Paul's going to tell the church, what do you tell the church to do in a situation like this? When you gather together, when you assemble, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus. That's who we're assembling in. It's in his name we assemble. I'm with you in spirit, because Paul wasn't there, along with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you what what is incredibly significant here as Paul speaks about the church, and that is when they gather, there's power in that. Because they meet in Jesus' name. No one individual is powerful. The power comes in the corporate fact that we look to Jesus to be the identifying quality and characteristic of who we are. It's him that makes it powerful. No one person. So there's a power in that meeting. In that meeting, in that corporate session, there's the power to do what we said last week in Matthew 18, the power to affirm a a person's profession. We're going to look at that guy and go, hey, there's something wrong because we're meeting in the name of the Lord Jesus and you don't seem to care about him. That's why we're dealing with the problem. It's not a social club. It's not the YMCA. It's not Lions Club. It's not. It's different. Jesus is the center of it. Okay? So there is power when it meets. And then verse 5. Here's what Paul's going to do. Here's what Paul is giving the church the power to do. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is a sermon in itself. All I can tell you is This verse at least says, Paul's serious. So what does it mean to hand him over to Satan? Other texts in the New Testament, which I don't have time to go to to prove this, but you need to to trust me on this. You can look it up in your own Bible. Go to Timothy, Thessalonians, his text. That means he's been moved out of the church. This is what it means to remove him. If a person gets removed out of the church, he is basically entering a a reality where he is no longer protection. So when the church meets, it's powerful. It's also protective. If you're not in in it, if you're not a community in, in that community, connected and identified in that community, you're vulnerable. That's what this is saying. And the word destruction is the strongest word Paul uses in Corinthians for some of the sins that people are doing in that church. It's the most sinful church in your New Testament. And he uses that term a couple of different times. And I want to read one of them to you. This is two chapters earlier. This is what he says. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise, or let me just say it this way. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Plural. That's us as a group. We're considered a temple. A holy temple. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. That is powerful. That means my sin destroys the church. God destroys that because we're not messing with this holy, this holy temple. It's holy. We need to see it as holy. And when you mess with that holiness, you pay an incredibly high price. You pay an incredibly high price. So the church has excluded this guy. He's lost his spiritual identity. He is is vulnerable. He's lost his identity. He is outside. 
God is hoping that whatever the flesh is, there's probably his spiritual, that whatever the sin is, is going to be destroyed. That hopefully being outside the church will help him see how vulnerable he is and what he's lost, and he'll want back in. That's the idea. You say, is this guy a Christian? We don't know. I mean, he is now vulnerable in a way that's very unique. We're all vulnerable every day, even if you're part of the church and you're committed to it and all that kind of stuff. But there's a unique way in which you are not identified with the body that you are vulnerable in a way. And so your question is, man, I don't want that vulnerability. I want to be connected to that community where I'm accountable for my life because if I'm not, I'm going to be held accountable to God. That's the feel. And we don't know his story. Paul will call him a so-called brother. He calls himself a brother, but we don't know if he is one. And in fact, we're treating him like he's not one in hopes that he will walk back in. But we don't know. We do not know. The church doesn't know if he's really a believer, and he can't know if he's really a believer if his sin doesn't bother him. There's just no assurance. It's a, it's a very vulnerable place to be, dangerous place to be. Okay? So, Paul's going to use a metaphor to explain what he's talking about now. Here comes the metaphor. He says, your boasting is not good. Your, this whole spiritual personality you've got going on here. Meanwhile, you've got sin in the camp. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, this is just a graphic picture, and I just want you to see it. So, on the day of Passover, uh, they started the day, they started the, un, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, once a year, Israel would go through all of their house and get rid of all of the leaven. The leaven is, you know, they would t- make a loaf of bread and, and, and they would hold a piece back from that bread, okay, every week. And they would put it in, the, in this dough and then this whole lump would be leavened and that's what caused it to rise. And every week they would take a little piece off, little piece off, and they'd save it back. They'd eat this and then they'd take this and they'd put it in here and it would leaven the whole lump. A little leavens the whole lump. Now, well, here, here's what Jesus is saying. It's probably one of my favorite metaphors for the church. We're just a lump of dough. Big old lump. Most of us, the way we love bread, it works. It really works. So we're just a big old lump. And he says, this little piece seems out of proportion that this little thing would ca- cause the whole thing to be problematic. But that's what he's saying. Sin is like a toxin. A little sin affects the whole body. We're asking the question, how? How does it affect that body? How does the whole lump get affected as we're relating it to the church? So here's what they would do. They would literally go through their house. This was the picture Paul's using. It would go through their house, and they would clean all the leaven out. There wasn't to be any leaven in any home or, any, or the temple. All of them, both of them had to be cleaned out, every house. They would literally light a candle and walk through all of their house, literally the corners of their homes, and clean out every spot. You know when they did it? It was the month of Nisan, the 13th and the 14th, which is our April 14th and 15th. It's where we get the idea of spring cleaning. 
My mother used to make us do spring cleaning when I was a kid. Did you ever do that? I mean, all furniture outside. The furniture went in the yard. Put the furniture in the yard to clean that house. It was the worst day of the year for a kid. Everything was getting cleaned. Everything was getting wiped down and disinfected. That's how the Israelites treated leaven. Leaven was like the sin. Get it out. You would have Passover, okay, which I'll explain that image in just a second, but the Passover. And you know, uh, I, just, I don't have time. Just hold on. Uh, there's no way I'll get done with this, and I, I got to get a lot farther. So here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says, that little leaven. Watch. Clean out the old leaven. Well, who are they talking about cleaning out? <laughs> Our fella at the front end. Get him out. Remove him out. Disinfect the church. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. <laughs> I love that. Big old lump, but a clean one. No leaven in it. They would do that for a week. He's saying clean out that lump so you could be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. You say, what does that mean? When Christ, when you became a believer, you became part of a new lump. The whole community, not just you, it's a lump. That's a, <laughs> by the way, this is plural. This is plural. Okay? No, I'm sorry, it's singular. That means all of us in one. He's not viewing us individually. He's viewing us here. But when he says, you are in fact a new lump, he uses the plural there to say each one of you are now part of a new one thing, this lump. Don't be the leaven in it. Get that out. Be the lump I made you to be. Now, this is what's really important. You don't have to clean yourself up to become part of the new lump. Christ makes you part of the new lump so you keep it clean. Do you see the difference? You don't have to clean your life up before you get here. Once you become a believer, you become part of a clean lump. You're holy in that sense. Now, get rid of the sin. That's the next piece. The Passover would happen. And remember, the destroyer was coming. Exodus 12, 23 says the destroyer was coming to town. Make sure you have blood on the doorposts of your house. The Passover would happen. That was where the forgiveness came. Then you spent a week eating bread that was unleavened to, to explain, now you need to live holy. You don't live holy first. You let the blood cleanse you of sin first. Then you live holy. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Christ is saying, I've already made you holy, now act holy. I've made you holy, now act holy. That's what he's saying. Okay, and, it's, and by using this illustration here, saying clean out the old leaven, he's getting very sacred and ritualistic. This is ceremonial language that suggests urgency and intensity. Let me tell you what would happen to you if there was any leaven found in your house or in the temple in the Old Testament. You were killed on the spot. You were, you, actually, you weren't killed. You were moved. You were, you were run out of the city. You were run out of the nation. Moved out. Same imagery here. So 
So Christ's death on the cross, his sacrifice, look, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So he's died, now we've been forgiven, let's live holy. That's what he means by this text. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven. How do you celebrate the feast? Israel would celebrate being forgiven by eating unleavened bread all week. How does the church celebrate Christ's death for us on the cross, which provides forgiveness? Celebrate the feast. That's a present tense. Always celebrate it. Not for a week. Your whole Christian life, this is what Paul is saying, your whole Christian life, because it's present tense again, which means continually. Continually celebrate the feast. How do we do that, Lord? Continually live holy now that I have made you holy. The celebration of the Christian life is living as holy as we can for him in celebration of what he has done for us. Do you see that? If you decide you want to keep sinning and you love it, you've stopped celebrating what Christ has done for you. I don't know where that puts you. But it's dangerous, according to 1 Corinthians 5 and other New Testament texts. You're treated like someone who no longer is celebrating something's wrong, very wrong. That's how you celebrate. Otherwise, what happens is, so you say, why do, why do we have to remove this? Why do we have to get the sin out? Why do we have to remove that guy from the church? Otherwise, when we come together and we celebrate communion, which we're going to do here in a minute, what are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? You know what ends up happening? We end up celebrating forgiveness, and this is what Christians are great at, and the world hates it. We can't wait to celebrate forgiveness. We're really slow to live holy. world hates this. No, when you celebrate this, you're celebrating forgiveness and it motivates you to live holy. That's what this celebration is. So what happens is we don't know what we're dealing with anymore. It's not a, the celebration's all wrong. You say the community's lost its identity. If it celebrates becoming a new lump, it's celebrated becoming a new lump with communion, but it keeps the sin in then that would be, you're not celebrating the right way. You, you've lost your identity. That's what he's saying. So the first reason is, you're celebrating the wrong thing. Notice what he says, celebrate with unleavened bread. What is unleavened bread for us? It's, sin- it's sincerity and truth. Authenticity. Be the real thing. Sincerity is made up of two Greek words, sun and judgment, which has the idea if you shined a bright light on it, you'd see that it was real and authentic. If a bright light was shined on you, would we see that you're authentic? That you really love Christ and you really hate sin and you long to live holy because of what he's done for you, not legalistically. No one in here should be motivated to be holy so they don't get kicked out of a church. You should be motivated to live holy because of what he has done for you. 
And when you stop celebrating what he's done for you, something's wrong with your heart. And that's why you got to be removed because you're not identifying with that new clean lump anymore. And the church loses its identity and it can't distinguish itself from the world anymore. The world looks in, sees us doing everything they're doing and goes, why not be, what's the difference between being in there and being out there? In fact, Paul's going to go into that here. What, because that's the second reason why we got to get it out. Otherwise, there's no distinction from the world. Look what he says. This is verse 9. I just got it in a different background so you can see. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the immoral people. You got a guy in your church like this. You're not, we're not supposed to associate with him. In other words, we got to get him out. There's no, there's no close association anymore. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world, the people out there, the outsiders as the text calls them, or with covetous or swindlers, idolaters, because you'd have to go out of the world. You can't leave the world. You can leave the church. You can't leave the world. So you can't stop meeting with immoral people. This is a beautiful image, Hillside, and I want to show you what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, Hillside, church, you have to be holy. But, when you, but, you're, but you're allowed to go into a holy world and live holy out there. There's no danger for you. There's no danger of you being unholy because you went out into an unholy world. Christians think just the opposite usually. I'm so scared to be out there around the sin. You ought to be strong enough to handle that out there and be a difference maker out there. But, you don't, but you're not violated because you're out there. Otherwise, we would have nowhere to go. Where would you go? There'd be nowhere to go. But notice what he says. Actually, I wrote to you, here's the person that you need to worry about associating with, is the guy who calls himself a believer, but he's immoral, he's covetous, he's an idolater, he's a reviler, he's a drunkard, he's a swindler. Don't even eat with that guy, because that was the closest way to develop fellowship. And some people believe it's don't eat communion with him. I don't think it's not eat communion with him, but it's hard for the picture not to come to mind. We don't eat with that guy. We don't break bread with him. We don't break bread with him in communion. We don't break bread with him out there because we can't identify with him anymore. He's calling himself someone he isn't. It's a different scenario. And here's a great text for you. For what have I to do to, for what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul says, I don't judge outsiders. This is a great message for the church. Quit judging the world. It's not our job. We're far better at judging the world than we are ourselves, aren't we? And the, the world hates it. Look what Paul says. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes. He's still drawing the distinction between the inside and the outside. Are you in or are you out? And whether you're in the church or not determines whether you're in or out. It's an incredible text. Overwhelming. But those who are outside, God judges them. You look at the world right now, and there's a lot of things going on in that universe out there, isn't there? There's a lot of unhealthy things going on in every category. Heartbreaking stuff. It should break our hearts. Be very careful for you. Be very careful in this day and age that you become hateful and uh, hopeless and negative and critical of the world. What do you expect from? Do you expect anything else? Chill. That's what it looks like when Christ hasn't come into your life, saved you, changed you, and transformed you. 
But when you're in here, those things should change. So remove that wicked guy. This is powerful stuff. You freaking out? Anybody else are freaking out? How many of you are skipping lunch now? You're not even going to eat lunch. I know. It's crazy. Now, let me apply this to Hillside real quick. What kind of sins are we talking about here? And uh, what does this process look like in a church? Okay? Well, I want to say this to you. These are usually big sins, obvious sins to people. They're obvious. Uh, And somehow as a person, let's just imagine it's me. I'm the safest person here to use so that I don't offend anyone. This could be me. I could adopt, I, this could happen to me. Absolutely. That some big obvious sin happens in my life. Maybe I don't realize it. Maybe I've, I've become too arrogant to see it. But I choose a, ten, a sinful stance, a defiant lifestyle of open rebellion. Open rebellion. Let me tell you why it's got to be big and open. Because little sins usually don't make it this far. If I approach you about a little sin, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Little sins don't usually go that far. That's the reason we don't do little ones. When we talk to each other about little sins, we're like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. That's usually what happens with little ones. Uh, They're easier to see. They're easier to fix. Much harder to police. I mean, if we all were to police each other's little sins, oh, my goodness. We'd be miserable. So the the church can't deal with your private sin. We don't know. We don't know each other's private sins. We don't know about that. So we struggle with sin, but we usually are trying to get rid of it and hate it. That's our, our stance about sin. But every once in a while, a sin will creep in that you just let dominate your life, and you don't want to stop it. And usually, uh, in my experience, that is a very complicated kind of sin. And that's why it very often starts with living together. Most of the, the most common sin that has to be addressed is a couple that lives together. The very first time we ever had to address this as a church body, it was a couple living together. And, and by far, most people struggle with this piece right here. It's complicated. There's another person involved. To stop doing it means my life's going to change and be different. It's not like I'm just giving up a sin, not going there anymore, or not doing this anymore. Now it becomes complicated, so I take a stance, and I go, I'm not giving that up. And it becomes obvious, because now the lifestyle you've chosen is clear to everyone and obvious. That's the kind of sin it is. So living together is the best illustration, and it's the most common. But you're like, how in the world is the church supposed to be countercultural if we, 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 we lower the standard of marriage as believers? Uh, there's sexual impurity, and most of the people living together are, are arguing that they're not having sex. I'm like, nobody believes that, dude. <laughs> Say what you want, nobody believes that. And in fact, visually, it, it's not supported very well. So we use those excuses. It then becomes inconvenient and costly. And so I choose. I can't give this person up. I can't. I can't. It becomes too costly and inconvenient not to live with them. I'll tell you the stance that I have at the church. I tell people, and I've told them this before. You tell me you need to get out of that house, and you tell me it's financially too expensive for you, I'll get a group of people there that will cover the cost for you until you get married. You just tell me what you need to get out of that house. We'll help you get out. So, 
That's the most common one. But let me just tell you what happens when you confront a couple. The very first couple of these years, this is a year one at Hillside. We're 22 years old, year one. First couple, we prominent couple in the church. We were small. Everyone knew who they were. Uh, they started dating. Then they started living together. We had to address that with them. Very, very, you know, one person at a time. We went right through the steps. Very cautious. You handle these things very, very delicately. And we did that. They didn't want to stop. But before we could do anything, before we could do the steps, they run. And that's what most people do. They just take off. And I just plead with you, please don't run. Let us kick you out. That works so much better for the church. It works so much better. Please let us kick you out so that you'll say, oh, my goodness, I don't want to be kicked out. And you'll want back in and you'll stop. See? But if you run, we can't help you. We're like, ah, missed a shot. What we missed was the opportunity for you to go, wow, I don't really want to be kicked out. I, I, I don't want that. So you miss the whole dynamic because most people run. The second one is adultery. That's complicated too. You've got to give up on a person. Now there's marital issues and that becomes huge and a person doesn't want to give up the adulterous affair. And I'll tell you how we handle these. A person will let We'll go meet with that person, an individual. Then he'll take two or three. And if two or three don't work, then we call the elders in. And you sit down in front of the elders. We've had this happen numerous times. Well, guys sit down in front of the elders. He'll see his sin. He'll stop. He'll go, we need to stop this. Then we help him get his marriage on track. And we've seen that happen. Sometimes they run too. They run and the, the process sort of gets killed because they run. But, if they, but many times it never has to go to where we have to really assemble together and go, we need to deal with this. Because either they run or because they repent. You either run or repent. And a couple goes, oh, I'm really sorry. So if you, listen, you did, the, the, you did something you really hate. You can't believe you did it now. But you repent of it. It's done. And it's not nobody been telling anybody you're forgiven. We're moving on. It's over. But if you take a hard stance and say, I'm not giving this sin up. You're destroying your family. You're, you're calling yourself a believer. Now you've you got you to gotta go. But we usually don't let, get to let that happen. I had a preaching up here a few years ago, and I, it was actually longer than that. I'm standing up here, and a guy walks in. Okay, we know that there's an issue with this guy. He walks in with the woman that he is having the affair with. Sits four rows behind the wife he's still married to. And I'm up here trying to preach. This is a guy I know. He's been here a long time. He knows better. And I'm up here going, feeling horrible for her, the wife. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And this is what I'm saying inside my head while I'm trying to give the sermon. I don't want to tell you what section it is, but it's the most sinful section in this church. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. It's the most sinful section. I keep my eye on that section every time when I'm, when I'm really preaching. So we had to sit down with that person and deal with that issue. That was hard. But he's not here. So you know, he was connected to a small group. Small group met with him in front of the small group. We had to say, you got to go. It didn't come to the big church. It came to the little one he was in here. It came to the little one that he was in. And he's not here. That's that story. 
we've started the process on a number. I'll tell you a couple of the other things that have started the process at Hillside. Uh, shady business deals with each other. Actually pulling the wool over each other because we're afraid to take a loss. We, we, we hurt each other in a shady business deal with somebody in the church. Or there's abuse. Physical. We've had physical abuse issues. We've had verbal abuse issues. Uh, where you're taking advantage of but Once you repent, this is over. That's why it very often uh, doesn't get too far because either people realize it and they stop sinning or whatever the case. Um, now I know how easy this is to be misunderstood if you're just sitting out there and you go, I don't know much about the church, but that sounds a little crazy. Just look at our history. How many times have we had to do that? Up here. Usually it happens very privately, and it gets settled and done. But the church can't ignore it. We're biblically mandated to handle it. We've got to deal with it. It's happening in your life. I'll tell you, Jonathan Edwards was 18 years old, and when he talked about somebody else's sin, this ought to be every single one of us. You hear someone else in this church is doing something they shouldn't be doing. You better take that very, very cautiously. Jonathan Edwards said, resolved, 18 years old, this young preacher. Here's what he said, to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only on occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. On any moment, the Holy Spirit could take my breath away for what I'm capable of. I know you feel the same way. So I want to ask you as we come to the table. Here's what I would ask you as we come to celebrate this feast. What does it mean to celebrate this feast right here? Because our band is going to come out as they do. I just want to say this to you. Now, they're coming out, but stay focused on me because this, this is the application. What kind of sin, or uh, here's the question. Am I celebrating only forgiveness in my life? Here's what I want to do. Am I celebrating only forgiveness in my life, but I'm living any way I want? Then you're not celebrating that feast properly. In other words, I'm celebrating forgiveness, but I'm not celebrating holiness in my life. Have I taken a defiant stance on sin? If I decided I'm going to keep this sin in my life, that would be a problem in your heart. Has my lifestyle, has my lifestyle become to the point where if I do go out into the world, they don't notice any difference between me and them? There's no difference. I've lost any impact on the outside world. And I'll, I'll tell you another one in light of this right here. I would ask this question. Have I surrendered myself to the church? Have I surrendered this ch- myself to this community right here? I want them to hold me accountable. If I'm not doing what I ought to do, if I take a defiant stance on sin, somebody ought to love me enough to start this process with me. Am I close enough to the church to have that? Have I become a member and announced that I'm one? Count me in on that group of people who want to celebrate holiness. Because I don't want to be the one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 
I don't want to be the one that destroys the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking corporate spirit. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.